the main point is that if you train a model that is generic, you need a lot, a lot of parameters mm. because it has to learn from everything. Okay. But if you have a specific use case, and I believe that any company will, uh, if they think about their final customer and how their product is fitting their final customers, probably is able to, uh, let's say, constrain the, the yeah. LLM. Okay. And by considering, I believe that you can first use a much smaller model, mm-hmm. um, and then probably with a much smaller model, you can train that and fine tune that with reasonable cost. Okay. This Shang Chou is VP of Engineering at Translated. Translated is one of the largest translation companies in the world, providing translation services for the likes of Airbnb, Skyscanner, Uber, and many others. Translated has been working on proprietary AI technology and tools for more than 20 years. It has an internal research team and it creates tools that power the work of tens of thousands of professionals. With Dishang, we will explore what it means to be an AI-first company. And we will talk about many things, including building AI in-house versus using APIs and tools, turning AI research into products, and the endless debate about AI empowering professionals versus AI stealing your jobs. Welcome, Dishang. Thank you for being here with us today. I'm very happy to be here and also excited because uh, I've seen refactoring from, I think, uh, the, the first day that you published the first post. Yeah. So I'm really happy to yeah. be here. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, really. Dishang, you are uh, VP of Engineering at Translated. So you basically live and breath AI. I would say before it was cool, even. Uh, and there are like a million things uh, I want to ask you, but before we start, I have, I have to make a disclaimer because I have worked myself at Translated for uh, one year uh, before I started refactoring. Actually, I quit my job at Translated to go full-time with refactoring. It was a fantastic experience. Uh, but even before that, we had known each other for more than 10 years because we were co-founders of the same startup, of our startup. So having you today on the podcast feels a little bit like cheating, you know, <laughs> but I'm really a big fan of the work you're doing. And so I can't wait uh, to ask you more about it. So thank you again. Actually, uh, for me, it's the same because uh, also for me, it's like cheating because uh, I, I, I feel like uh, being here because I know you directly. But uh, I think we are doing, we are, uh, we have done and we are doing a lot of interesting stuff related to AI. So I'm, I think it's uh, interesting to discuss about those points today. And, yeah. uh, and then I mean, if the audience like to ask me questions, I'm here and uh, uh, very good, Constantine. Yeah, yeah, the audio is better. Yeah. So excited to start. Uh, so the first thing I want to say is that Translated is doing a great job, is powering with technology some of the uh, biggest companies uh, in the world. Uh, but Translated as a company doesn't make many headlines itself, right? So uh, my first question is very basic. That is, what does Translated do? If you can explain to us in a nutshell to, to create some context. Yes, yes. I mean, translated, uh, uh, I mean, for the name, it's quite easy. We do translation. 
And I think the most interesting thing of Translated is that it's doing translation uh, which can, by innovating. Uh, and uh, it's one of the most innovative um, uh, company in the translation industry. Uh, why? Why? Because from when it was founded, has been designed to uh, combine human with machines. Okay, now it's a, a trending topic because yeah. we have uh, AI everywhere. But uh, when Translate was built from, uh, I mean, the initial uh, uh, website where uh, people were asking for translation, has been designed yeah. to have AI in the middle of the process. Okay, we yeah. build uh, the first solution to rank linguists, translators, yeah. uh, so that we can match the request of a translation job to the uh, translator, best translator that we could find in our database. Uh, to now that we uh, basically have our own machine translation engine that is supporting big enterprises to um, solution that automatically sub or provide help use linguists to subtitle or dub uh, um, content, video content uh, to uh, LLM labeling, uh, the whole, um, a lot of jobs that we cover. Uh, yeah. starting from, I mean, a simple job that was working with linguists and helping linguists yeah. to, to uh, be productive. And uh, I think that is a really interesting thing to, to learn and to describe. Yeah. So it's basically a combination of humans doing the work, so translators and linguists and tools and AI that help them, right, to, to perform better, uh, combining uh, machine translation, so, so uh, straight uh, AI and machine uh, uh, translation software with uh, translation done manually by humans. Yes, exactly. If you think about uh, another example, Google Translate, you know, when yeah. um, they built Google Translate, the idea was let's translate content on the web. And the idea yeah. was to uh, not use humans, just use machine translation and translate the new content from the web. In our yeah. case, when we build the machine translation, the idea is let's build a transla machine translation that can help humans doing their yeah. human translation job. And this actually seems the same objective of translating, automatically translating content, but it's completely different as a use case because uh, when, for example, a linguist or a translator um, is doing his job, what happens is that segment by segment, they get the source content they want to translate and translate that on the target. So every segment that they submit to the system provide a feedback to the engine. And yes. obviously uh, we designed a solution that uh, is uh, adaptive machine translation. So basically what happens is that at each submit of the user, the engine, the machine translation engine is adapted with that content. So yeah. um, for example, now if you use Google Translate, uh, if it makes a mistake, it will always make the same mistake over and over again. In our case, okay. if we make a mistake, the first time we make a mistake, you correct that. Second time, it will be perfect. And yeah. I think that is uh, how we change uh, in terms of paradigm of work. Yeah, and, and, and another difference is that, as far as I know, it's not like this engine is used by final users who need the translation. I mean, maybe some, some do, but it's not like Google Translator, who is a consumer-oriented product. I mean, this engine is used by professional translators, right? As, long, as far as I understand. Yes, I, uh, we have two main use cases. For one use case is for 
professional linguist. Yeah. Obviously, professional linguists can be also LSP. That are basically agencies that uh, work with linguists to yeah. uh, to make them more productive. And obviously, an adaptive machine translation can help a lot in this use case. Yeah. Our solution is also used by enterprises, and uh, the enterprises can have you no know, different need. One is to obviously uh, work with linguists and uh, help their productivity, and this obviously is something that they they need and. Uh, um, they use the engine this way. Another use case is that they want machine translation that is adapted to their content. No? Okay. For example, if suppose that uh, uh, I'm saying a name, Apple, no? if Apple yeah. has a support um, center and they chat with, uh, with um, their customers and they chat in all the languages, uh, yeah. but they have the support center that support only in uh, English, they need to translate all the content in all the languages to English and uh, uh, vice versa. So what yeah. does it mean? It means that they use a machine translation in the middle that can uh, uh, translate the content with uh, their terminology, their brand uh, um, groceries and so on. And uh, uh, by using Google Translate, I mean, Google has two solutions. One that is Google Translate that you cannot actually customize. Another one that is AutoML, that is an uh, enterprise solution, but uh, it's uh, uh, really, let's say, big because it's really costly. And you to train the model, you need to build a lot of data that you take it and, and uh, train the model. In our case, the engine is built adapted from scratch. So what does it mean? It, it means that as soon as you use it and you get the first feedback, then you send the first feedback, the engine improves. So you just have one endpoint that is, let's say, the static engine. As soon as you give a feedback, then the engine improves and, yeah. uh, and the quality rise. Okay. And this is being used, I mean, your model is being used by some of the largest enterprises, right? I saw the headline, it was some maybe one year ago or so that Translated had closed the, the largest contact in the history of translation with uh, Airbnb for Translated all the Airbnb content, including like user reviews in all the languages throughout all the locales, right? Is it yes, how yes. it works? I think that uh, uh, this is some kind of pivotal change, you know, because uh, uh, typically people, when they use tra machine translation, it's more uh, a push button where basically you see a content in a language that you don't know, you push a button to translate in my language, yeah and you, you read the content. Airbnb, uh, we helped at Airbnb to build a, a new uh, approach. And basically, instead of showing first the original content, we show the machine translated content. Why? Because yeah. we are, first of all, confident with the quality. So uh, I think that is uh, the, the, the minimum bar of uh, sure. uh, why they chose to have this solution. A second point is that uh, um, often, seeing a content in another language is a blocking point for a customer, no? For example, if I'm buying a, a product and uh, I see only reviews in German, my first thought is, okay, uh, this product is not sold in Italy or this yeah. brand is not famous in Italy. So maybe it's yeah. not working well, it's not famous enough. And uh, I start to think about this stuff, no? While if you see the content on your language directly, uh, I think that it completely changed your your way of thinking. And uh, I was talking to a colleague, and uh, and uh, he he told me he got this experience when he was traveling with Airbnb, 
and being able to chat with uh, someone that uh, do not speak your language and a certain point meeting him, no? And then suddenly uh, you had a long discussion with him and he doesn't know, know how to speak English. Actually, yeah. it's really um, fascinating, right? Because uh, yeah. uh, on one channel, you are free to communicate and you can discuss a lot of stuff uh, from uh, check-in to yeah. uh, experiences you can have there and so on to one point where you see physically and uh, and the, the host maybe is not uh, fluent in English and yeah. is not able yeah. to communicate well. Yeah. No, it's very interesting and it's a very human uh, problem that technology... Uh, can solve. So I, I want to understand better um, how how this works. In the sense that we all knew we all know this is the year of AI, right? I mean, last year was also, and next year will be probably year will be years of AI. Uh, but there are still just a handful of companies that are making their own models, right? Or even fine tuning models versus I don't know using stuff that exists or wrapping APIs, there is also this running joke about, you know, most AI companies being nothing more than wrappers around some GPT, uh, right? Uh, so Translated instead has been investing on uh, their own AI models for, for many, many years now. So I was curious about your point of view about how do you think about this? That is, when do you think uh, companies should create their own AI technology versus they should reuse at various degrees because it's not black or white uh, existing stuff. And I'm asking this because I think uh, most companies today uh, feel, you know, the, the formal of they want to leverage AI. They want to use AI for good either in their, in their products or in their workflows but they might not know what is the best way if it is whether they should create this strong uh, skill set in-house, hire, you know, uh, a set of machine learning engineers or treating it as an external resource that they can plug into, into what they have. Yes, I think it's a really interesting question. Maybe let me uh, start from uh, the, the how translated is a machine translation. And, yeah. uh, and why we build that. And uh, maybe that is an example and uh, I will formulate later uh, my, my, my thoughts there. Um, now, if you think about the translation job, the fact that uh, the, the, the linguist can start from a machine translation output helps a lot, no? Because it has yeah. to uh, possess it instead of translating from scratch. And um, from the start of Google Translate, actually we used for many years Google Translate as a service. So we uh, had um, a long uh, relationship with Google where we basically uh, were using uh, Google Translate for as a translation engine our CAT tool. CAT tool is basically the tool where linguists uh, get uh, online and they can work and translate content yeah. for us. And, um, but then uh, with uh, the, um, the advance of our technology and the, the first transformer model, we built Modern T. That actually is the first commercial um, product uh, that was selling and using a transformer engine, okay? Yeah. And um, the, the, the really nice thing is that we had many months, many years where we were building our own engine and we were using an external service. 
And yeah. we decided to switch our, our own engine when the quality was, in our case, was better than what we found on Google. And then from there, we started to sell also Modenti as a service, okay, as yeah. a, a standalone product, okay? Yeah. So I, I believe that's your question about, you know, when we should use API or when we should use services that already exist and when we should build in-house. I think that is a really good question. And I would say that uh, uh, probably, especially when you start a business or you are um, testing or validating something, more than 90% of the cases, I believe that don't make sense to build from scratch something because uh, typically it's really easy to find, uh, let's say, almost state-of-the-art or state-of-the-art solution online mm -hmm. uh, with a lot of advantages. So you have uh, you, uh, less ramp-up cost. It's really quick to validate your idea. So, for example, if you think that, uh, uh, suppose that I'm a company, like I'm a um, chatbot company, no? and yeah. uh, I start to think, okay, I need translation, okay? I can think, okay, I build a machine translation engine, but uh, um, that will mean that you need to, to hire people, build that, uh, and do a lot of stuff. But if you use a translation service, translation API, then you can validate quickly your solution. You can uh, plug in your product. And in really a few days, you have your own product localized in a lot of uh, yeah. languages. Okay, this can be um, an example for translation, but can be classification, can be chat, can be any service that you, you want to serve. So yeah. it's a really um, quick validation. Uh, cost typically is proportional because uh, all API calls is uh, typically proportional to how many calls you, you make. And obviously, uh, if you are in validation step and you're a startup, you don't need high volume or typically you don't need. Yeah. Um, you can validate your assumption and, uh, um, and, uh, and then you can, let's say, worry about the scale up later. Okay. Yeah. Um, one thing to say is, uh, Obviously, you know, about uh, when you choose API, there are, let's say, a lot of cases where you cannot choose an API, okay, mm -hmm. for several reasons, okay. Uh, the simplest reason is that the volume are so high that uh, it's too costly. Um, consider, for example, Google Translate. Google Translate, I think, as a standard rate is $20 per megabyte, okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, if you think about, uh, I don't know, Airbnb, but even, uh, no, Amazon, bigger company, uh, if they want to translate all the content, all the languages, it could cost hundred millions of dollars to translate yeah. all the content. So that's why they don't pre-translate all the content. Okay. So there is yeah. a cost, uh, to do that. And obviously uh, above a certain level of cost, it makes sense to invest in your own team to build your own technology that allows you to uh, feed the service and uh, improve the yeah. solution. Then another reason why people should de decide to use uh, and build their own solution quality. Uh, in our case, I mean, at a certain point, we decided to switch to modern T because uh, on our side, uh, our data was telling us that we, we were able to solve the translation problem in our case yeah. for linguists better than Google Translate because in our case it was adaptive, okay? Yeah. Um, so whenever you have, you find a, let's say a constraint on the service that you're using, the API that you're using, 
uh, that can be uh, low quality. Uh, it's not working well for a certain language. Uh, it's too slow. I mean, we know that, for example, GPT-4 is slow, and for yeah. real-time use cases, maybe can be um, not cannot fit really well. Okay, and that's I think is another reason why people can decide to use and build their own solution. Yeah. Another, I think, the third option, the third reason why people can decide to uh, build their own uh, uh, models are by security or by, let's say, strategically um, yeah. for the privacy company because they want to build an asset or, yes, or yeah. privacy. Yeah. And um, why this? Because often for enterprises, enterprises need to run AI on private data, on really yeah. um, copyrighted uh, data that cannot yeah. send to OpenAI, okay? Yes. And uh, in that case, obviously, what you, you the only choice the, the, that you have is to build your own models to to train and uh, basically hope to achieve those those level of quality. Yeah. The main point is that uh, it's not trivial. Yeah. In fact, I, I think this is very interesting because um, when it comes to choosing between uh, using an external model through an API, for example, let's say using the GPT four API versus uh, training your own model with your own data, or even even a little bit simpler than that. You fine-tune an existing model with your own data, but the, the, these are still very uh, tough processes that may take a lot of time, a lot of resources. So it's not easy to prototype what the quality maybe will be. And, and so if your bottleneck uh, is quality. I mean, if, if you're, if you, what you want to improve is quality, uh, maybe you don't have an easy way to, to validate that you, you're, you're gonna make it better, but by creating your own, your own system. So uh, how do you, how do you think about that? Is, uh, when you look at what you have, that is data use cases, do you have some heuristics or, you know, quick thoughts about wh when it makes sense to, to invest in your proprietary technology versus uh, adapting uh, systems that already uh, exist? I think this is an even harder question because <laughs> yeah. we keep, uh, we keep like getting a... harder and harder. That's how it works here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's like finding a, a math formula to decide when to use and build your own model. I yes. think that's, uh, it's, it's really challenging. I would say that, uh, especially if we talk about LLM, no, and we talk about uh, large language model, yeah. the key element I think is data, because yeah. uh, to uh, any task that uh, is like fine tuning a model, specializing the LLM for your own uh, task, means you have to have a high quality data, okay, and probably also a high volume of those data, because uh, um, you need to teach. A, a model that it's good as a baseline to work on your uh, content. Okay, let's yeah. think about you know, the e-commerce the e that was mentioning before. Uh, suppose that you sell standard product, like, uh, you know, commercial product, then that's easy because the GPT-4 has been trained with a lot of web content that probably yeah. can describe a smartphone, can describe uh, um, I know standard products that can be found online. But suppose that your e-commerce is specialized in industrial products. Okay, yeah. there is no content on the web with those description. And so what happens is that your LLM 
if you use GPT-4, then probably uh, <laughs> as soon as the user can start to ask, okay, can I use this machine and plug in to my yeah. uh, older version with another code of product, then GPT-4 is somehow useless, no? Because yeah, it doesn't don't know how to respond. Yes, because there is no training data for, for them to, to understand how to, to use that service, okay? Yeah. So definitely, I think the key element is to have high quality data. So if I was the e-commerce, I have to have a database with a lot of products that are, let's say, non-standard product that I have in our database with their description, with uh, how people can uh, use that product and so on, and try to use these as a training data or a fine-tuning data for the LM. Okay, so yeah. I think this is crucial point. Then second point obviously is to have an AI expert, uh, someone that can uh, work with LLM, has experience in fine-tuning LLM. Yeah. I'm saying this, why? Uh, because someone said, oh, I can take a new hire, a new graduate student and give him uh, this data and ask him to uh, fine-tune the LLM. I think the problem here is that uh, uh, because it's a large language model and by definition to fine-tune and train one of those models you need a, a lot of resources. Yeah. Um, we are, I think, in a, in a setting where it don't make sense to, let's say, get a cheap yeah. machine learning engineer yeah. um, because he can probably waste several hundred thousand dollars in a, just yeah. few fine-tuning, okay? Yeah. So, so if, that's the, uh, ju just the to make it clear, that's the ballpark, right? I mean, if you want to fine-tune an LLM to your own data set. So uh, is that the ballpark of what you, you need to expect to spend, like $100,000? Uh, uh, let's say it, it, it depends a lot. It depends a lot on how much data you have, because uh, consider that the, the cost of fine-tuning is proportional to two um, dimensions. One, the parameters of the model. So if you choose to use uh, uh, a 7 billion model is far different from using that to with a 70 billion model. Of because course, one yeah. maybe is 10K, the other one is 100K, of course. Okay. okay. Then that is the first dimension. The second dimension is uh, um, the number of tokens. So the, 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 how big is the data set that you, you, you send yeah. to the model. Okay. Yeah. So depending on these two dimensions, you can somehow predict, okay, yeah. what is the cost of a fine tuning. And obviously, based on that, also think about if it is worth having, let's say, cheap machine learning yeah. engineer yeah. that is, has less experience or someone that has a lot of experience. Personally, I think that uh, if someone is serious in LLM, they need to uh, invest in the team, invest in seniority, uh, because it's easy that doing the research activity, you fail one, two, three, four, five. I mean, I saw... Uh, research teams that failed even 10, 15 times until a certain point they were able to find a good way to train, fine tune, and get the yeah. final model that was better than uh, the start, the start, uh, the baseline. Let's say. Yeah. No, that that's very interesting because I think many companies do not realize that first it's a very costly process because I get it that you say it depends on the amount of data, but we are also saying that doesn't make sense to fine tune unless you have huge amounts of data. So, right. So, so it's, it's never less, the cost is never less than some, some threshold, right. And then 
also the fact that this is a risky activity. So you, you may train and spend a lot of money and, and fail, right? Because they say these models do not converge, right? They, they, they do not get to an outcome that is higher quality uh, than the base model for, for your purpose. Yes, yeah, I heard stories about, I mean, companies training models, I think for something like two months, three months, and at a certain point, finding that the model was not converging. I mean, yeah. uh, training for three months for, I don't know, probably 10, 20 um, servers with eight, A100, eight, yeah. H100, and discovering after two, three months that was not converging. I think that it's uh, really uh, crazy in terms of cost, no? Yeah. Um, so I think uh, that is definitely something to, to consider. Obviously, one compromise that you can, as I mentioned, is provision of the parameter of the model. So you can decide, okay, let's start smaller. We start from a smaller engine with less um, parameters. I yeah. try to make that converge. If yeah. that converge, I'm more confident. And so I increase slightly and one step up after another, you, you get from seven to, to 10 to 14 and, and so on. Yeah. And, and I, I think that is probably the best approach uh, to, to yeah. start real LMs. Yeah, that, that's very sensible advice. So you, you may validate this on models that are with in lower yes. number of parameters and then, and then scale if things are promising. Yes, yes. For example, now 17 billion, if a 17 billion parameter needs three months, no? Yeah. Uh, we're, we're saying that probably the 7 billion maybe needs nine days. Okay. Yeah. And obviously if something can complete in two weeks, it's much, much better, especially at the beginning doing the research yeah, phase, doing when you need to understand what is the quality that you, you, you need. Yeah. And obviously when we talk about quality, you also have to build your test set. I think that's yeah. really important because it has to be uh, representative of, of your final use case. No. Uh, I saw a lot of time people working with public test sets saying, oh, this solution is great. And they apply on their product and find that it's um, not working well. Why? Mm -hmm. Simply because the test set is uh, like public with different content, while mm -hmm. your reality, it's like uh, chat content. And the chat content, people start to write uh, and have typo and all this kind of stuff. And the yeah. engine basically uh, make mistakes. Yeah, that that's very interesting. There are a lot of moving parts that need all to work for this to to make sense in in the end, as opposed to using models that already exist out there. So I, I th this conversation was really interesting, and I wanted to understand better how it works for translated from an engineer organization point of view. That is, I know you have uh, researchers in house that work on. Uh, AI models and AI research, and and then you have to translate this into technology that goes into products that get used by sometimes professional users like translators, other times even you know the general public. And as you know, also OpenAI has this uh, you know dual structure where it has a research track, let's say, and then a product track that productizes what comes out of research, but it doesn't look easy to me, you know, because it's two different types of work completely, you know, researchers are different from product people and also 
the way research happens is different from uh, from products. Uh, so how does it work for for you? <laughs> I think also here this one is challenging. I'm not sure if the board. I mean, this one is challenger or the previous one, but I think this one is tough. Uh, I, I have to say that, uh, especially when you know, uh, we we put people that are from the research together with yeah. the product, um, it's uh, easy to mess things up. Uh, now, first of all, they come from different background, maybe. Uh, yeah. They also typically have different objectives, right? Because um, uh, someone that works on new research has, a, let's say, a long vision and try to think more a long-term solution trying to think about how can I improve the state of the art and build, uh, I don't know, the, uh, an advancement in uh, machine translation, a new feature that can use to improve here or improve there, you know? Yeah. Uh, and also researchers typically think about publications. While yeah. if you think about the product and uh, in, uh, product teams, production teams, obviously they are really completely in the opposite side in some fields. So they, they obviously don't think about publications typically. Um, and often their KPI is like a really a business KPI, like a conversion rate of the product, uh, load time of a page, um, response time from the customer and so on. Okay, so yeah. it's always uh, a product uh, and a business KPI that drives a product production team. Okay, um, and um, and also another point is that uh, typically production team works in sprints. And yeah. uh, with the idea that they need to have quick iterations where they can get some deliverables, some results quickly, okay? While obviously research team, because they, they think about long-term and the long-term research, often it's not uh, really fitting well in you know, this, this way of thinking. Mm. So I think this is really challenging. A translator, we have um, uh, typically a, a product team, but we also have a research team that uh, is involved in, um, let's say, uh, some activities that is purely research. So we have a research project from European pro uh, European projects. We have uh, um, alter uh, collaboration with research centers and so on. That let's say is purely research. Yeah. Then uh, I think we we can come. If I try to distill you now what, what my, yeah. my experience here, I have to say we can consider two use cases. Okay. One where basically the product team and the, the production team has a clear need of uh, a AI component that needs research. And I think this is the easiest um, use case, no? Because, yeah. uh, for example, I need a, a piece that can, is able to classify a task, text uh, with a certain level of quality. Because if it is above this quality, then I have a really good product that can improve the productivity of a team. Yeah. If it is below this threshold, I can say, okay, it's not good enough because I ruining the experience of the uh, production team. Okay. Yeah. So uh, thanks to this clarity, I think he, for the research team, it's much easier to try to achieve these results. Okay. Yeah. So uh, for example, as I mentioned, if it is a classification task, I can give uh, a clear guideline to the team saying, look, I have this data set. I have the training data, I have the test set. Yeah. For this test set, I need to reach this level of precision, this level of recall. Uh, for this 
classification. And then these uh, can be binary, can be yeah. multiple label and so on. And so we, in this way, decoupled the work from the production team, product team, and the research team. So what yeah. happens is that we build a roadmap with the research team. We say, okay, we can finalize this in one quarter. Okay. After a quarter, we review the, 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 the R&D activity and the, if the model is above the threshold, then success, we ship the product and uh, we have uh, everything live. If it is not good enough, then the product team can decide, okay, uh, I can back up in a, a third-party solution. I can okay. uh, use something that I can find online. And, uh, and uh, the R&D can have another iteration where basically they try to uh, improve and get above that threshold. Yeah. So this is product-driven. So I, the, in this case. Yes, product driven. Completely. Yes, I okay. think this is completely product driven, and also it's the simplest use case. I have to say, uh, why I'm saying that this is the simplest because I think that there are a lot, a lot of other use cases where it's hard to define the boundaries mm -hmm. and hard to define what is your goal for each step of the, your product. I, I make another example now. If you talk about the modern tea and we talk about machine translation, uh, the main point is that it's, it's not possible to define a product team that is not also a, a research team, no? Because yeah. uh, during the release and the improvement of modernity, we do product feature, but we do a lot of research also to improve the machine translation. And so uh, somehow we have uh, two teams that have worked together really um, as a, almost as a single team. So we have a group of work with engineers, with uh, AI, with data scientists that works on data. So that it's really easier to have a quick, quick iterations. And also it's really easy to come up with innovation. Uh, I give you an example now, because um, as I mentioned before, we have uh, an adaptive machine translation. And that's, I think it's uh, one of the key elements of translated uh, since many years. But from there, uh, recently we launched a new product inside Modernity that is Human the Loop. Okay. Mm -hmm. How does it work? So basically the idea is that when you are an enterprise and you need machine translation, typically the process is, is like this. You use a machine translation, you discover some issues with your customer and you try to fix them. Okay. So you send to human translators, correct those sentences. And then if you use us, we can take these sentences and automatically update your engine. If you use AutoML or other, let's say, custom models, you need to build the training data, send this training data to, to the third party. The third party will fine tune and build a new model. And uh, this has mm -hmm. been done by, by, the, 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 by the enterprise, okay, by our customers. Yeah. With human the loop, the idea is that instead of doing this, instead of letting, uh, uh, asking the customer to select the sentence and correct them and so on, on our backend, we do everything um, without any input from the user or almost okay. any input. And we're not trying to explain. The idea is that you use our machine translation. You say, I want a certain level of human revision on top of the machine translation, let's say 1%. What we'll do is that automatically from the content we receive to be machine translated, we will review them with humans. Uh, and uh, we have an algorithm behind that will rank the content, select only the worst sentences to be human reviewed. 
Okay. And by correcting these sentences, what happens is that the engine will improve day after day. Okay. okay. Without any and almost any input from the user, because the only thing that the user has to set is the threshold mm -hmm. of the human loop. Okay. And I think uh, this product is fascinating because it, I mean, it, it somehow it came out from our activities between a combination between product, data scientists, uh, AI, yeah. and our interaction with our, uh, yes, research and our interaction with our customers. Because by talking with them, by understanding their pain, uh, we come up with, the, with this solution. I believe that this kind of product is hard to, to, to come out from just a product team without all the research, all the data science yeah. activities. And it's hard to think from the research point of view, because obviously they say, oh, I improved the engine and that's it, no? While yeah. the combined view, I think it's something that it's, uh, it's really fascinating because uh, it's fitting well uh, the, yeah. the use case of our customers. So basically, if I had to take a lesson from this, we are saying that there are cases where we are lucky, let's say, and we can derive research and improvements in the in technology uh, from the, the product perspective, because the product knows exactly what it needs. It knows probably that it can be done. That's another, you know, question mark. But there are cases where you can, we can say that in advance and, and you go in that direction. But there are also other cases where it's more like the research that drives uh, what, what can be done, which the product cannot know by itself, basically. Uh, and you can only get to a good result if you keep people close together, working together and work with the customer, close feedback loop, uh, because otherwise, yes. if you treat people like silos and departments like here's the research, here's the product, they don't talk to each other uh, unless, you know, there, there is something very specific to, to pass around. If you work like that, you might miss out on a lot of improvements that require the whole group of people to work. Yes, yes. And obviously, as I mentioned, it's... Uh, it's uh really easy to mess things up because by uh, combining people that has different experiences, different background uh, in the same team, working together and also getting in touch with customers, it's really challenging, no? Because uh, yeah. I don't know if you had experience, but uh, engineers reply or researchers replying to customers, I think it's uh, something that yeah. they don't, <laughs> it's don't want to, to <laughs> yes, it's, I say it's risky, yes. <laughs> Uh, not because I, I mean, I'm, I have a PhD, I, I work a lot with researchers and I also work a lot with customers. It's not about, uh, no, I don't trust people. It's just, uh, I mean, the philosophy of com our company is uh, we believe in humans. Uh, so it's our motto. Uh, but I think the main point is that uh, researchers tend to speak in a different language from the customers mm. that yeah. speak different languages from product teams. That's why I think um, yeah, this can be done with the right people, with the right setup, with the right organization, so that um, the interaction probably with the customer has been managed by someone from the product team or someone with experience that can then uh, understand how to communicate with internal teams and uh, and uh, so that the internal team can have their own routine and work together. So it's, it's challenging, but uh, I believe that uh, in our case, it's working well. Yeah. Now that's really fascinating. And 
So one of the uh, things you have said that we believe in humans, right? And, and then you have mentioned before human in the loop. So one of the themes of this chat has been uh, using AI to empower people at work. You know, you work with professionals and one of the things that are peculiar, uh, I think about translated is that you have been combining this human work with uh, machines and software for, for many years, even before, you know, AI was uh, a thing uh, in, in the mainstream. Uh, so I, I wanted to, to pick your brain about this whole AI versus jobs uh, debate, which uh, has obviously two sides. I would say one more optimistic and one more pessimistic because we all agree that AI is changing how people work and it's going to change a lot of our um, job landscape. Uh, but you can see this from an optimistic angle that is AI is empowering people and making them more productive. So more productivity equals more wealth, you know, and, and so everything would be fine. Uh, or you can take it from another angle that is saying AI can now do stuff that before that people would do. And so it, it is going to uh, take some, some people's jobs and uh, it, it's going to be challenging because people will lose their jobs, etc. So you, you have a privileged point of view about this because you are seeing both angles. Uh, so what are your thoughts about this? I have to say that, uh, uh, now, as you mentioned, translated philosophy has been always to augment human productivity, to help humans to express themselves so that the AI can, let's say, support us in, uh, doing the job that is less creative. Okay. Uh, for example, if you think about translation, if you use machine translation as a scratch, the idea is that instead of not saying, okay, the simplest word, how you translate the simplest word, you start to think, okay, the translation is this, but the user wanted to say this. So maybe I can go beyond the simple translation. Okay. So, uh, I think that, uh, in our case, our philosophy is really, uh, the idea that machine uh, AI can support and augment humans capability. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I believe that for the translation industry, we are really far from the case where really the machine can do everything. I just give you a few numbers because, uh, consider for example, an enterprise, you know, that spends something like 100 million in annual budgeting marketing is something that, uh, it's, it's quite useful, common for localization. They typically spend something like one to 4% of that budget. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, so what's the point here? The point is that if you want to save 1 million in localization, but you can risk to mess up the 100 million because you, uh, yeah. made a mistake in translation and there is a long history of localization perks and so the mistakes yeah. that uh, all the companies, uh, many companies did, uh, there are actually good translation, literal translation, but uh, when you get to a point where uh, you, you, you have your campaign in that country. Yeah. Uh, there is also a culture bias, uh, that, uh, will drastically change how people perceive your brand. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I think there is no scenario where a marketing team will say, I don't want to spend 1 million in localizing the content with a good quality because, uh, so I can, 
uh, high risk to, yeah. to, to waste 99 million in, in marketing. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so I think this is crucial. And the second example is that if you think about these companies, typically this 1 million is spent not just for the translations, spent for translation, revision, and even a third pass of revision. Why? They want to have the certification that the quality is the best that they can achieve. Okay. So uh, in my experience, uh, all the enterprises that get to machine translation, they typically think that that content is low, let's say, value. Mm -hmm. Maybe they have a lot of that content. Um, and, uh, and then they use the machine translation. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I really believe that uh, uh, for the translation industry, we are going to improve the machine translation engine. And uh, there is a lot of discussion about you know, singularity and so on to be able to translate as good as translators. But then, as I mentioned, we have the revision language leads and so on to be sure that the quality is good enough. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and as a company, we also have this philosophy of uh, whenever we improve the productivity of the linguist, because we improve the machine translation, we have a revenue share approach. So basically, the idea is that by improving the productivity of the linguist, the linguist gets, uh, let's say, a uh, uh, X percent of improvement in productivity, so they can uh, actually uh, get more money for the same time that they are working. And now, in the same case uh, for us, the same example for us, because we, by improving the engine, we uh, get a percentage of the revenue share. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I saw some questions from the chat. I don't know if you want to. Yes, we can. We can. We can pick them up. So there was a question for from Mike, and then one from Andrea. Uh, so the first question from Mike is, uh, I read it out loud. So in your experience, is it better for validation? I think this comes back to our discussion about the, the models and the translation. So for, is it better for validation to be done on the user side or on the translator side? Could there be a problem with influencing the model based on a particular context compared to creating a model that uh, works universally? Uh, good question. Uh, I, I think that um, uh, the the golden uh, egg now here is always to, to test the model um, with the final use case. Okay, I think that okay. is uh, definitely the, the 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 best way to test a model. I'm saying this why because, uh, for example, w working to have a universal model that is, let's say, the best engine ever. Sometimes it's not possible, okay? Mm -hmm. Because uh, I give you an example uh, for the translation. I think it's uh, something that I can <laughs> give a really quick example. Uh, if you think of that, for example, now that I want to build the universal machine translation, that is like best in any use case without, let's say, uh, 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 knowledge of the customer. This is tricky. Why? Because often you have translation that is good for a certain customer, not good for another, okay? Yes. Because for the, for the branding, okay? For example, people can choose that uh, in Italian, they are really a high-level brand and they want to talk to the customer in informal way. I mean, I don't know, I, yeah. <laughs> just to give an example. And uh, there are other uh, brands that uh, they want to be really like um, young uh, communication mm -hmm. and they really need to communicate like with uh, uh, slangs and with yeah. uh, no, different uh, tone of voice completely. It, yes, different tone of voice. 
the main point is that an universal engine there will not work because uh, in one case it will uh, translate uh, you know in, in a tone that is not fitting well the the branding uh, yeah. the, of the company so definitely i think the the the, the only way to to measure the quality of the model is to get in the final use case build a good test set there that is representative so uh, randomic is, is enough, it's good. Uh, yeah. Get a big sample randomically and use that as a test set. Yeah. Good, good answer. So I'm picking another question, which I've read before and uh, I love it from Andrea, uh, who is saying that the cost of developing, fine-tuning or God forbid training whole LLMs makes it hard for developers to play with them. So except for a few exceptions, uh, most big techs also keep their model very private. So given all these premises uh, and all the also incredible costs that we have talked about before, uh, what opportunities do you see for small or relatively small companies on or source communities to, I think, create innovation or work with this, uh, with these models? Um, okay. <laughs> really good question. I think this uh, community has a really high bar of uh, questions. No, I think that it's really a good question because um, definitely, um, I, I'll give an example also of Translator. Now we are working on LLMs. Uh, the main point is that uh, um, it's hard to, to challenge these big enterprises. No? So definitely yeah. in our side, uh, it's not smart to say, okay, the first thing I will do is to train from scratch a new LLM yeah. because that would mean investment of hundred millions of dollars yeah. probably. Um, I think, uh, as I mentioned before, there are different paths that you can follow. Consider that uh, even in GPT-4 now, it's uh, really big, but because it has been trained for a general purpose, now going also back to the question from Mike, the main point is that if you train a model that is generic, you need a lot, a lot of parameters mm. because it has to learn from everything, okay? But if you have a specific use case, and I believe that any company will, uh, if they think about their final customer and how their product is fitting their final customers, probably is able to, uh, let's say, constrain the, the yeah. LLM, okay? And by constraining the LLM, I believe that you can first use a much smaller model. Mm -hmm. um, and then probably with a much smaller model, you can train that and fine tune that with reasonable cost. Okay. Obviously it's not something that, uh, because, uh, when, I mean, when I was a student, I learned AI, it was not a training of, I don't know, a few minutes and yeah. my, in my laptop, no, and yeah. that was training of AI solutions. And obviously, uh, uh that is not cost, you know, while here, even this small test needs, uh, an investment of, I don't know, Several, several, I mean, 10, 50, 60,000 dollars probably okay. to get a, a reasonable result. But I think it's something that can be achieved. Okay. So you, you, you are saying that the way forward for startups and open source communities and in general people who have less, uh, maybe less data and also less money than big tech is to. Uh, find use cases for niche models, you know, smaller models that are, but the models that accomplish a specific use case very well, 
uh, and so they can attack that as opposed to trying to innovate on general purpose, super big models that will always be something that only the open AI or Google of the world can, can achieve. Exactly. Yes. Uh, I'll give you another example because, uh, for example, we, uh, as a translator, we have two, um, we have several products, uh, outside the standard product of machine translation. And for example, one product we have, it's, uh, um, a compressed model. Okay. Okay. We, we build this model because, uh, some customers want really quick API, fast responses and P99 that is below 200 milliseconds. Okay. 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 And, uh, uh, what we did was instead of uh, having a bigger model, no, that is our standard machine translation, we compressed this model and fine-tuned for specific use cases. Okay. And actually what came out was that the smaller model was able to beat the bigger model in those use cases. Okay. okay. I think this is somehow the lesson learned. You can really um, if you're, let's, let's say the big company works with 70, 100, uh, one, one trillion parameter, uh, yeah. probably with one order, even more of one order money to less parameters, you can, for your specific use case, uh, beat the, the standard model. Yeah. Uh, I think this is a great insight. So Andrea, there is hope. So let, we, we, we will try this. <laughs> So I, I want to go back a little bit to the um, to what we, you said before about working together with uh, with professionals, with translators, and making them more productive and sharing revenues with them. Right? Um, I think that's a healthy way of working. I mean, a healthy synergy between the human work and the AI work, but. Um, it doesn't always happen. You know, we, we, we are seeing many examples of AI models that take data from, that is created by professionals, and then there is no collaboration between the company and, and the professionals. I mean, I'm thinking of diffusion models and things like Midjourney takes illustrators work and illustrators are mad, uh, of course. So do you think that the way forward is keeping humans in the loop, like you're saying, so building uh, ways of doing business that makes people who create the data, at least at the professional level, benefit from, from the, the models that are created with them. So do you envision other companies working like Translated do? Yes, I believe that uh, that is uh, the right direction. Uh, the reason why I think about that is that Suppose that you're an enterprise, you know, typically enterprises are those companies that spend big money on, yes. on those activities. And the main point is that, uh, suppose that you are a company that you're using GPT-4 for your chat support. Okay. Yeah. And suppose that you, you use that and, uh, uh, it's really easy that GPT-4 setup point can mess up. Okay. Why? Yeah. Because, uh, it's true that you can give it some constraints. But the end user can actually um, still ask, for example, the model. Uh, I don't know if you are a certain brand, they can ask the model, look, uh, um, what's the problem with your brand? And yeah. the this, this system, if it is not trained on that, will start to, to answer from the data that he had. 
Okay, yeah. so we'll say, oh, look, oh, look, um, uh, I have people complaining because uh, I sold a fake product. Okay, yeah. and yeah. Uh, with your chat, so with your brand name, and that yeah. is it's crazy. And I, I heard about uh, companies running a pilot with the GPT-4 as a chat support. And at the point, I said, no, we cannot use that because, uh, as I mentioned, when you scale the business, you have a lot of people asking questions to find all kinds of questions, you know? And, yeah. Um, yeah. and then obviously the, the, uh, that is, is exposed as a, as a product uh, of the brand. So going back to the question, the main point on my side is that to have a right quality level on those LLM, on this AI solution, we always need a human that can, an internal team uh, of professionals can review this content. In our case, it's linguist for translation, but for LLM, I believe it's still the same. For if the, you, you want to use chat, probably you need to uh, re, uh, review continuously the quality of those chats to ensure that you don't mess up the content. Mm-hmm. And you are the guy that finds the issue, not the customer. I think yeah. this is crucial because yes. if the customer finds the problem, it's already, already too late it's because too late. Uh, he's getting a bad experience. Yes. Great answer. So, Dishang, thank you so much for this. Uh, thank you for being with us today. It was, a, it was a great chat. It was a pleasure, really. No, no, thank you. And uh, really happy to be here. And uh, I mean, any, if you have other questions, I'm uh, available and we can also discuss in the community. Yes, uh, Dishang is a long-time member of the community. So if you have further questions or, they, or you think about them later, you can... Uh, write them under the thread and tag the Sheng and we can continue chatting there. Uh, so for now, uh, thank you everyone who showed up. Have a great rest of your day and, and see you soon. Thank bye. you, bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this chat valuable, you can subscribe to the show on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Also, please consider giving us a rating or leaving a review as that really helps other listeners find the show. You can find all past episodes and learn more about the show at refactoring.fm. See you in the next episode.